Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. So uh, last week, I think it was last week, we were talking about Sidney Powell when she cut her deal. Maybe it was two weeks ago. Um, So I thought this was interesting as a follow-up from a couple of days ago at the New York Post in a piece by Miranda Devine. Sidney Powell, the one-time Trump legal advisor who famously failed to release the Kraken to overturn the 2020 election, has flipped. This news has been greeted with great glee in the usual circles. Ah, salivated the New York Times. Sidney Powell's plea deal could be a threat to Trump. I need to do that. Yeah. Much scarier. Way, way scarier with the sound, right? But like Sidney Powell, they are always promising a Kraken that will never come. They dream that Powell's testimony will deliver a lethal blow to Trump and his embattled former attorney, Rudy Giuliani. However, for anybody who had paid attention to Giuliani's testimony to Nancy Pelosi's January 6th House show trial... Uh, where uh, he repeated in greater detail behind closed doors to special counsel Jack Smith, Powell was in bad odor with both Trump and Giuliani. I have never heard that term before. You are in bad odor with me. I'm going to start using that. Uh, Excuse me, you are in bad odor with me? I think Bernie can probably use it way more during the morning shift. Anyway, um... She was in bad odor with Trump and Giuliani from the minute she started jabbering about Krakens, which Giuliani told then-President Trump was crazy poop. But he didn't say poop. So between them, they fired her three times because they thought she was a crackpot. The headline on this piece, by the way, is Trump and Giuliani never fell for Sidney Powell's 2020 election Kraken. But the left sure did. They go on to say later, and this is a very lengthy piece. I'm just giving you the highlights as usual. Not long after the 2020 election, uh, Giuliani, then Trump's attorney, realized that Powell had zero evidence for her far-fetched claims, including the Venezuelan dictator, you know, Hugo Hugo Chavez had hacked voting machines to rig the election for Joe Biden. On November 13th, 2020, 10 days after the election, Powell teased her evidence saying, quote, I'm going to release the Kraken. A week later, Giuliani was so fed up with her baseless theories that he issued a statement making clear she did not represent the president. I do remember that. I remember that happening. But somehow Powell managed to inveigle her way into the White House on December 18th. So a month later, she got signed into the building by a junior staffer. I'm not sure if she offered like a little baggie of cocaine or something. Was this outside of the purview of the cameras? I don't know. It's difficult to, it's difficult to say. 
Giuliani recalled that he was eating dinner at a restaurant in Georgetown that Friday night while Trump was at the White House presiding over a stormy meeting. That's a stormy meeting. He's he's at a meeting that was volatile. It's not a it's not a porn star. It's not a different it's stormy meeting. Anyway, um, who was there? Sidney Powell, General Mike Flynn and a businessman named Patrick Byrne faced off against White House counsel Pat Cipollone and colleagues of his over various harebrained schemes to overturn the election. Trump called Giuliani, who's, again, eating at this place in Georgetown, and asked him to rush over and adjudicate the meeting. Giuliani arrives, and they... (laughs) Apparently, Trump had put them in different rooms. (laughs) He had to separate them. Uh, You go over here to this room, you go to that room, and we're going to wait for Rudy to get here. So Rudy shows up. The Powell group, this is what he says. This is what he testified to. The Powell group wanted the president to sign a document that would allow seizure of the voting machines. And then they started really, really fighting, you know, yelling and screaming. Sidney said that she had affidavits that showed foreign involvement in the election that therefore would justify the use of the U.S. military. But Giuliani told Trump that he had, quote, a very bad experience with Sydney because she started out as part of our team and she would make allegations and then she wouldn't give us the basis for it. And then our team would have to go out and try to defend it as best we could and then it would turn out to be exaggerated. I remember that. This is why I quit paying attention to Sydney Powell because the Trump people were walking back every dang thing that she would say. By the way, this is one of those things. If you are ever uh, involved or engaged in any kind of a lengthy process, legal, uh, real estate-wise, development-wise, just, you know, anything like that, um, you you got to be patient, you know? I understand deadlines. Trust me, I've worked in radio for a long time. Totally understand deadlines. But the pace of these things are important and lining up your ducks is important, right? You can't go out there and just engage in this hyperbole and just um, you know make these these uh, widespread allegations and then walk it back later because it undermines confidence in then everything that you're doing and also that process and then people are going to just start ignoring you and that's what happened with Sidney Powell apparently by Rudy and Trump. Next up. He went through, um, Giuliani says he went through 12 of the affidavits that Powell had produced to justify the military to seize voting machines. So he sits down, he goes, (laughs) he goes into the Roosevelt room, I guess, and he sits down, he reads them and it takes him 45 minutes. He says to realize they were a joke quote, she basically had one source that she found a way of repeating 12 different times through other people. I told the president there was nothing uh, there was nothing that would justify using the military. Trump then says, throw them out, and I don't want them back here again. Trump and Giuliani were not desperate enough to believe her crazy theories. There's no excuse for her gullibility, but it would not be a surprise if she had been fed ludicrous ideas in a crude psyop by anti Trumpers. 
which was successful beyond their wildest dreams. The moral of the story for everyone is to maintain your New York cynicism, which Trump and Giuliani have in spades, by the way. But, like, that's an interesting theory. That one might actually explain what happened to Sidney Powell. She has all this stuff and release the Kraken. We have all this. We have this affidavit. It, is this the Steele dossier again? Someone gave her some bunk material and she, quote, fell for it. And then tried to advocate for it and became blinded. That was Miranda Devine at the New York Post. Over at the Assembly NC or the NC Assembly, it's a, it's a fairly new publication. I want to say the last two years or so. It's where a lot of the retired uh, ink-stained wretches from the... Uh, I don't mean anything by that. That's just the... It's a colloquialism. Term of endearment for uh, print reporters and such, journalists. Uh, a lot of them have uh, retired uh, or gotten fired or laid off due to the, uh, the uh, wild success of uh, newspaper newsrooms. But... Um, they, uh, they've gone to work now for the assembly, nc.com, uh, online publication. I think Jim Morrill is over. I know, yeah, Jim Morrill's over there. A couple other uh, people, uh, what's his name? John Drescher, I think, has set it up. He was a former McClatchy editor, I want to say, up in the Raleigh area. But um, they've got a piece today written by Eric Cunningham. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. He's the editor-in-chief of Elections Daily. He's from North Carolina. Uh, and he did a piece along with Joanna Still, who is the Wilmington editor. And it's called Battle for the Burbs. Battle for the Burbs. And this is all North Carolina focused. Uh, by the way, I have forwarded over. I have no idea uh, what maybe we just leave AT&T. I don't know what that does to our phone numbers. But um, I have uh, I, I am forwarding over the recommendations for other service providers, sending them to management. So um, let me get to some emails. Because they work, Pete at thepetecalendarshow.com. Uh, this was on um, uh, Joe Biden's emails uh, from the last hour. This is from Dave Pete. Much like Hillary's emails were nothing more than her daughter's wedding plans, I am sure Joe's emails were nothing more than him uh, showing off his son's beautiful artwork. That's true. Well, you know what happens, you know, when the kid comes home after class and like, look, Dad, look what I painted. Oh, that's so great, Hunter. And then he just actually, that's not a good Joe impression. He'd be like, <laughs> and then he would like email it out to um, to all of his uh, his colleagues at the uh, White House and maybe some foreign dictators, you know, if they wanted to buy it. Um, let's, uh, uh, let's see. But this is uh, Jan. If the phone lines don't work, we could try alternative methods of communication. I mean, yeah, we have email and the Twitter machine. I don't know how to send a telegram. I live too far away for smoke signals. I assume you would prefer that we do not drive by and throw bricks with notes tied to them, though. I would bet that would be Winston's preferred method. That's possibly. Possibly. I am firmly ensconced, though, high above uh, the first floor. Um, I'm going to have to watch this clip from uh, Josh Hawley in a moment. First, let me get to this piece at the assemblync.com. As Donald Trump became the dominant figure for national Republicans, white suburban voters across the country trended heavily towards the Democratic Party. I know this is going to some of these some of these uh, data points are going to uh, annoy people of various 
political beliefs and persuasions, people on different teams, uh, but that did happen. Trump became the dominant figure. White suburban voters went for Democrats. Uh, And that shift was seen in states like Colorado and Virginia. They became solidly Democratic at the federal level uh, and uh, was the pivotal factor in Joe Biden's 2020 victories in Arizona and Georgia. North Carolina has been an exception to this trend. After Barack Obama's narrow victory in the state in 2008, Democrats thought North Carolina, the ninth largest state, would become a key part of the Democrat coalition. Instead, the state has voted Republican in every presidential and U.S. Senate election since. There's a fellow they rely on for a lot of this information. His name is J. Miles Coleman, an associate editor at Sabato's Crystal Ball, a newsletter run by the University of Virginia's Center for Politics. So compared to its blue neighbors, North Carolina's population is less diverse. They they say less educated. That just means not as many people with college degrees. I don't like the term less educated, but that's what pollsters and like the uh, demographers and analysts have always sort of used that uh, that label less educated. But that just means you don't have a college degree. You're not less educated. One is not less educated just because they did not go to college. In fact, I could argue that one is less educated if they do go to college. But I digress. Less affluent, less concentrated in urban areas. Right? So that's a look at the state just in general as compared to Georgia and Virginia. Hey, so real quick, hurricane season is here, and this is your reminder to check your emergency supplies. You should have a three-day supply of food, water, and medicines, minimum. And Carolina Readiness Supply can help you get started or expand your supply. Food, water purifiers, lighting, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies too, because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you can use for any kind of emergency. Whether you're an experienced prepper or you have no clue what you're doing, or maybe you're somewhere in between, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you in Waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply, will you be ready when the lights go out? Alrighty, so compared to its blue neighbors, North Carolina's population is less diverse, less educated, less affluent, and less concentrated in urban areas. North Carolina lacks the suburban mega-counties of Georgia and Virginia. Instead, our population is scattered across half a dozen major metro areas. In Georgia, you got more than 56% living in the Atlanta metro area. That's amazing. 56% of the Georgia population is in the Atlanta metro. In North Carolina, Charlotte is the largest metro area, and we only have 21% of the population. So we're way more spread out all across the state. That makes it more difficult for the Democratic Party. The state's outer suburban counties, also known as exurbs, you've also probably heard the term... um, Oh, my gosh, I was going to call it metropolitan. It's not. It's uh, countrypolitan. I think that's what they're calling it, countrypolitan. These exurbs, the, so not like your middle ring suburbs, but the ones beyond that. They give Republicans anywhere from 60 to 80% of the votes. Think Union County, for example. We have our winner, I believe, right? Who's our winner? 
Lynn from Fort Mill. Lynn from Fort Mill. Congratulations. Lynn from Fort Mill got the $50 gift certificate or gift card to Bonefish. And uh, we'll do another one tomorrow. So be listening tomorrow. You never know when I'm going to do it. So these exurb areas give Republicans anywhere from 60 to 80 percent of their votes, according to this piece at the uh, theassemblync.com. But the state is still changing beneath the surface, especially in the inner suburbs of the state's biggest cities. These white, wealthy and historically Republican areas have been a key part of the Republican coalition. But as Trump has reshaped the Republican Party, they've begun to realign, creating an opening for Democrat politicians. The first example they give, Charlotte and the Wedge. Not a piece of iceberg lettuce. This is the wedge. It's like a pie piece. If you look at Charlotte, we are essentially a hub and spokes kind of a system. Uh, uh, Like infrastructure, like roads and stuff. Right? Uptown's in your center. Right? There's your hub. And then the spokes all come out from the center. And then there's, you know, the belt that goes all, 45 goes all the way around. Inside of that, you've got another, like you got 277. Actually, you had the old, the original but Charlotte Belt was uh, City Highway 4, right? Do you ever see those signs all around? Is it uh, Woodlawn, Wendover, Eastway? And it goes all the way around. That was the old belt. Connects all the way around the whole city. I mean, it's just two-lane road, but it goes all the way around. Anyway, so that was like the original, that was the original end of the world. Like when my wife was growing up in Mint Hill, that was, you know, Eastland Mall with the ice skating rink. Like that was the end of the uh, they, they lived, you know, they had a Charlotte address, though, but they they were like the end of the world ended at Eastway Drive. But um, anyway, the um, these exurbs, they still go Republican, but those those inner suburbs are now giving Democrats an opportunity. And the wedge in southeast Charlotte is identified as one of these key places. The wedge is southeast Charlotte, right? Myers Park area, like that little if you look at it like a, a, a hub and spoke or like a pie, like the old Trivial Pursuit pie pieces, right? That wedge down there was always the solid Republican uh, territory. For decades, Republicans maintained a stranglehold on the Charlotte suburbs, while the urban core of the city became more, quote, diverse and more democratic. The whiter, wealthier southern suburbs comprised what became known as the wedge, a roughly triangle-shaped Republican bulwark. The wedge and its counterpart, the diverse arc across North Charlotte, aren't just visible in historical voting patterns. They're apparent in demographics and income and school performance. Dominance in the wedge was what enabled Republicans to remain competitive in mayoral races as recently as 2015. And it played a decisive role in Pat McCrory's win in Mecklenburg in 2012, his uh, gubernatorial bid, That was the last time a Republican has carried the county in a statewide election. Today, federal Republican strength in Mecklenburg County is nearing extinction. So this is just at the federal level, right? President races, Senate. In 2022, U.S. Senate candidate Ted Budd won only six percent, six precincts rather, in the wedge. Quote, It's more or less becoming a pretty reliable Democratic constituency, said Coleman, who grew up in the wedge. Some exceptions remain, 
In Charlotte specifically, the closer you get to downtown, the more likely voters are to split their tickets. Republican support, however, uh, has proven surprisingly stubborn down ballot. In 2018, Mecklenburg voters decisively supported a Republican-backed ballot initiative to cap the maximum state income tax at 7%. And in last year's local elections in Charlotte, Democrats failed to unseat Tark Bakari, one of only two Republicans left on the 11-member city council. Although, just barely, I would point out there. Which, by the way, did you hear this story from the Charlotte Ledger that Tark Bakari's opponent, Stephanie Hand, that apparently she's been, uh, let's say, padding the resume a little bit. Yeah, apparently she's been running around telling people that she's she's been the leader or director or whatever of, of airports. That she's managed airports and the like. In, in fact, she has not been managing airports. She was managing a company that was doing the food service in airports, which is, I guess, kind of the same thing. Oh, it's totally, yeah, yeah. I mean, overseeing, you know, multi-billion dollar construction projects is probably the same as ordering the plastic utensils, I guess. That's a lot of overlap. Um, Counties like Mecklenburg and New Hanover down east represent a great vulnerability for North Carolina Republicans in neighboring Georgia and Virginia Wealthy college-educated white voters have revolted against Trump Republicans. But in North Carolina, these voters have been willing to split their tickets for many state-level Republicans, even as they vote for federal Democrats and statewide Democrats like Roy Cooper and Attorney General Josh Stein. This is what I always tell people when they ask, like, what happened with Dan Forrest back in 2016 against uh, Roy Cooper? Or 2020, sorry, against Roy Cooper. Right. What happened? Like, how is it McCrory lost and Trump won? It's because North Carolina has always been a a ticket splitting state. Um, it, and I don't know why that is, but it is. Um, I do not know. I got an email. Uh, I do not know. Um, Tom wants to know, did you consider the fact that AT&T may be a woke corporation and is purposely stonewalling your station's phone lines as a form of suppression. Hmm. Yeah, that's possible. Don't know. They did it to WFNZ, and they just talk sports, so I, I don't think so, but it's possible. Um, Allen says, Pete, a hub city, hub-and-spoke city, like Lafayette, Louisiana, or Pointe Noire, in the Republic of Congo, uh, a French design. Oh, oh, a French design so that they could retreat in any direction. These facts may be questionable. That's <laughs> uh, possible. I mean, I don't want to rule it out. I'm just asking questions. Um, <laughs> all right, so... Back to this piece here from the uh, the North Carolina Assembly and uh, the AssemblyNC.com. It's a piece by Eric Cunningham and Joanna Still. And um, they say counties like Mecklenburg and New Hanover down east represent a great vulnerability for North Carolina Republicans. In neighboring states, Georgia, Virginia, particularly, wealthy, college-educated white voters have revolted against Trump Republican candidates. But here, they split tickets. 
To many suburban voters, the image of the North Carolina Republican Party has not fully aligned with that of the federal party. But that might soon begin to change. Republican leadership has coalesced behind Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson's campaign for governor. Robinson won in 2020 despite a history of making inflammatory and controversial remarks on social media. As Lieutenant Governor, the socially conservative Robinson has inserted himself into a slew of hot-button culture war issues, most notably LGBTQ rights issues. I kind of feel like that's a bit of a microaggression, guys. You left out the the 2S plus IA. Just pointing it out. Okay. They conclude, the path to a Republican legislative supermajority runs through the suburbs. Even under the legislature's proposed new maps, Republicans are going to need to win at least two districts that went for Biden if they want to hold the supermajority in the House, in the North Carolina House. Okay. There are two districts that went for Biden that Republicans have to win in order to keep a supermajority. They owe their supermajorities to their ability to receive crossover support from Democrat voters at the local level. Right. That's the key. You got to get Democrat voters at the local level. It is unclear whether this past support's going to hold if state Republicans become indistinguishable from the national party. All right. So. What does that mean? This is this is a famous thing that uh, a lot of reporters will do and commentators will do. They'll say stuff like, it'll be interesting to see dot, 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 dot. And that's just their way of saying, I'm about to make a prediction, but I don't I don't have any faith or confidence in it. So I'm just going to tell you, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, I don't know either. Yeah, it, it might not actually be interesting at all. Right. It could be the opposite of interesting. It could be boring. Like, nobody even cares how it plays out. We don't know that. It's just a prediction. But mainly it just fills time. But that's the equivalent of what they've done here is they owe their supermajorities to the ability to receive crossover support. It's unclear whether the past support will hold. Now, I would have just put a period there because that's true, too. You don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows if certain um, Republican candidates in certain swing districts will be able to hold on to their seats, right? I don't know. They don't know. We're going to have to wait and see. Candidates matter. Campaigns matter. Stuff happens, right, you know, before an election that may change the, the electorate's mind and throw their support to somebody else. You, you just, you never know. That's why they play the game, right? But they're linking this to, um, to Robinson, which I'm not so sure that holds. Robinson is not Donald Trump. I know a lot of people want to say that he is. He's not. He's not Donald Trump um, for a variety of reasons. The thing that might um, turn off more people in North Carolina is Robinson may just be too conservative. Look at Dan Forrest. Right, Dan Forrest running against Roy Cooper. Now, I understand we're in a pandemic. Cooper and, and Josh Stein and the Board of Elections and Mark Elias right changed the election laws and stuff. But you know, Dan Forrest was positioned as the more conservative option. But also, he was the way he was the exit ramp. If you didn't want 
any more of the lockdown mask up theater crap. If you didn't want any more of that stuff, then that was your guy to go to. Now, maybe there are too many scared people on both sides. I mean, basically all Democrats and then like, I don't know, maybe half of the GOP. You know, anti-mask was not a popular opinion in the 2012 election. It wasn't. Most people were okay with masks. They thought it would protect them. They thought we should have the mandates. So when he got up there as the anti-mask candidate, it, 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 it didn't work for him. And then he's also, uh, and he also then, like he, it seemed like he got tired of having to explain the anti-mask position. Like there should have been, there should have been a way to do that. Like you should have been able to make the case against masks and to be like the foremost authority in the political arena about anti-masking. Because once you stake out that position, that's all the reporter core is going to ask you about. That's it. It's the only question they're going to ask you. Because you're torn around the state, you're going to these little places, you're meeting voters, and the local media person shows up and they know nothing else about you except you want grandma and grandpa to die, so take off your masks. So you better have a position, right? You better have some sort of an argument, an elevator speech, to convey that to them. To make your case in one or two sentences. It's tough, I know. But anyway, I don't think uh, I don't think Robinson is is like Trump. In fact, Robinson didn't even like Trump when Trump first ran. I mean, he likes him now, though.